Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on the payoff, I've got a superstar for you. You have been warned. Kristen Haratunian, I think, is 24. She got sober when she was 17, and she is an advocate for mental health, for addiction, uh, and, and other things, too, she talks about. She is a force of nature, and we need people like her to fight addiction, to fight substance use disorder, whatever you want to call it. She's a light in the darkness, and I really enjoyed my time with her. All the information you need is in the show notes, but first, Kevin Souza. I used to do these mostly audio because I don't know, it was something about like the anonymity or like, you know, the, sure. I, th- I thought that was pretty cool, but it's way better to see people. Um, no, I 100% agree. I mean, the next best thing would be seeing you in person. Yeah. I don't know if I could book a flight to, to Texas in well, under 48 hours. Well, you said your brother's in Houston, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. And where are you right now? Are you in Maniunk? Is that your place? Yes. Yes. Um, My little 400 square foot apartment. Well, hey, it looks <laughs> the exposed. I paid too much for. <laughs> the exposed brick is pretty nice. It looks good. Oh, it's a great background. Oh, yeah. It really is. Do you end up doing like a ton of Zooms from there? Um, During the pandemic, definitely. Um, I mean, it was like, I mean, so what I am, I sort of configured this setup. So I like dragged my vanity from my bedroom into uh-huh. my living room. And, um, you know, I have like the little ring light. And yeah. you, what I would usually do is put my setup here, talk to the kids. And it was tough because like of HIPAA, like I, most of the time I wouldn't be able to see them. So yeah. I'd be like basically talking to myself uh, for like an hour plus and uh, and hopefully I would get some sort of question or feedback or what have you. Do you know I got, um, I spoke, it's funny, our mutual friend, Tim Brooks, I talked to him about, talk, I, I spoke to a grade school in, um, on, over Zoom. And he was like, okay. he was like, dude, sometimes, uh, cause I was like, how do you, how do you do this? So this was like towards like the beginning of earlier part of the pandemic. He's like, sometimes right. I'll put like a piece of paper over my screen just so I don't have to look at myself the whole time. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, That's like the toughest part. It's like, <laughs> I have to like, because like when I'm in like a live audience, like I can feel the energy, I can see the facial expressions. Like I got to walk around on a stage and like when I'm here, like, I don't really like to like do my thing if I'm sitting because as you can, I'm like already talking with my hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm the same. <laughs> that's, I'm what a big I, that's what I yeah, do. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. I'll be sitting with somebody and I'll be talking and I'll see they start to look at my hands. I'm like, oh wow, <laughs> <clears throat> getting a lot yeah. of mileage out of these guys. Um, right. So this is how this will work. I'll do an intro, and then we'll just go right into this conversation. Love it. Yeah. So if you're ready to roll, let me let me make sure. Yeah. Hey, Mike, is my sound all right? I feel like I'm a little low, but that's probably on my end. Yeah, you got a good setup going. I'm good to go. Yeah. Thanks. Can you hear me okay? Can you see me okay? Yeah. Hear you great. See you great. Yeah. Um, All right. So I want to talk about how I first discovered you, let's say. I, I uh, I was just, you know, mind numbing scrolling through Instagram, and I saw... I was captivated by you or the Philadelphia Phillies decided to do a strikeout for stigma. I guess they did a series of nights and you spoke at one of the nights and it was just riveting. I mean, here you are, you're obviously a fresh face to put on this recovery, right? And sure. <laughs> you, you have great energy and there you were um, just very articulate and, and carrying a message of hope and, and recovery. Uh, how does it feel to be an advocate today when we're going to get into your story? It was, it was kind of like a minefield, uh, getting here. Yeah. I mean, I would have never thought in a million years that this would be my, like, not just my job, but my career. Um, 
you know, I always, I mean, when I first got into recovery, I thought I was just going to like, I mean, I barely thought that I could get a day clean or an hour clean or like a second clean. So when I got into recovery, like I was like, oh, maybe I'll go into PR, maybe I'll go into marketing. And, and I never would have thought that like this would be the career for me because <laughs> I get a lot of anxiety being on stage and being the spotlight or being in front of a bunch of people. But um, you know, I, I was sort of blessed with this opportunity out of the blue. And once I knew, I, I knew. How, what was your, you know, we talk about some of the highs, what was like the lowest of the low for you when you, when you had to, or, you know, for me, I never really decided to stop. I, I was, I had a guy tell me that I needed to go to rehab and it was like, I don't know. I just said yes. Uh, but it wasn't like my decision, but you know, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't, I don't know. It wasn't conscious per se. What, so what was it like for you? So I, I'm, my story is like very similar. Like I did not want to get clean. Um, I did not want to come into recovery. It wasn't even on my radar. I mean, I lived with my dad and my two older brothers and my dad said to me, and maybe this was like my second or third time getting clean. Right. And I'm, I'm 17 years old. And my dad says to me, um, you know, it was off of a relapse. My dad says to me, like, you're going to go to treatment and you're going to go as soon as a bed opens up. And at this point, there's a lot of powerlessness because number one, I'm a minor. So I'm 17 and it's not like I can like AMA or I can't check myself out. So, like once I go into a treatment center, I stay in a treatment center. I'm sort of like under the whim mm. of my caregiver. And that was my dad. Um, but really like what it was, was. You know, I go and I, I would go in and out of the rooms, you know, in and out of the rooms of, you know, 12 step and I would see all these people and, and I love the joke. Like, you know, everybody else was so much older than me. Right. Like I was like the baby in the room from like 15, 16, 17 years old. And I'd be getting like white key tag after white key tag. And I, and I would think to myself and say out loud in these groups that, you know, I didn't lose my husband because I'd never been married. I didn't lose my car because I didn't have a license. I didn't lose my house because I wasn't of age to even own a house. I didn't lose my job because I had never gotten a job because I was so young. And I was like just a high school student who's trying to figure it out. And I had somebody come up to me and they said, you know, I was where you were at, at 15, 16, 17 years old. And I didn't lose those things. And I stayed out there and I stayed using until I lost those things. And, um, and I was right where you're at. So like, you're either going to make a decision or you're not. And, you know, it took a couple of tries, but ultimately, um, I'll never forget laying in my dad's bed after relapsing for the millionth time. And I couldn't even, I, I couldn't even look at myself. I, I had lost everything that was important. I lost my self-respect. I lost any outlook on a future. Um, I lost my ability to live. And um, I, I lost everything that was near and dear to me, which was like all of the inside stuff. So when it was time for me to go to treatment, it wasn't necessarily like my bottom. It was like my first step forward. I just didn't see it at the time. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And, you know, your dad seems like I was very lucky too that I had my parents were just always, always there for me. They really were. I mean, you know, every, everybody's got their stuff with growing up and family stuff, but my parents were always there for me. And your dad sounds like he was a huge part of that, of that recovery for you. Uh, what, what, where did you grow up now? Did you grow up in outside of Philly in Glen Mills? Yes. Okay. I grew up in Glen Mills. Uh, I mean, I grew up technically in Springfield, but okay. I lived there until I was like six. So okay. where'd you, really you go to grade it, school? But... I went to uh, like Rose Tree Media School District, so uh -huh. um, Glenwood, Springfield, or uh -huh. Springfield, Glenwood, Springton Lake, Pencrest. That okay. was like oh, Pencrest. my stint. Yes. Okay, I partied. Partially. With, I partied with guys from Pencrest. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We're uh, a wild bunch. <laughs> so, what was your first experience with uh, a substance that was able to change the way you felt and thought? You know, that mind-altering situation. Yeah. So, um, this is an interesting question because my first interaction with a substance wasn't my own interaction with the substance. Um, my first interaction with the substance was through my mom. Um, you know, my, 
my mom was an alcoholic, anorexic, in and out of hospitals, in and out of institutions. And, um, you know, watching, you know, the bottle just deteriorate her completely. Like that was my first sort of like candid look of what addiction was, even though we didn't have the label of addiction at the time. Um, you know, that I, I had told myself for years, I was like, I'm not going to be that. And I say years, like I'm 24, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> but like years in my perspective. Yeah. Um, when you say that we didn't have the label of addiction, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So, I mean, like, I, I really do believe like 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, like addiction wasn't as talked about, like the stigma was much deeper. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was like, well, if we just only drink uh, a little bit at a time if we just don't drink to excess, but yeah. like, that's not how the disease works. Mm -hmm. Um, there is no just one. Like yeah. I remember being a kid and being like, why would somebody just have one beer? Yeah. It like, didn't make sense to me. I'm like, what's the point of yeah. having a beer? What if you're not going to get completely hammered? Um, but like that with, with my mom, um, seeing the way that she drank, like I didn't know at the time that there was a genetic component. Um, you know, I'd watched her go in and out of the rooms of AA and um, get get some time clean and then, you know, lose that time. And and I had convinced myself on like a really deep visceral level that the program didn't work, that rehabs didn't work because it didn't work for her, which, you know, it's like a huge generalization. But at the time, that was my outlook. Yeah. So you felt like you're watching this play out in, in front of you. How do you how did that affect you at the time? Did you is that why you think you started to use and drink or was it just other things where it just came into your life? I mean, I think like a, a large part of it is traumatic events. And the other part of it is the genetic component. Like, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I always like, I love this story because uh, I'm like, I'm like a storyteller by uh -huh. at heart. So I remember, so we had like a, and like, you know, I have my two older brothers. So my one older brother is two years older and the other one is four years older. And we had this basketball court in our in our driveway and not court like the net. Yeah. So we had the basketball net in the driveway and and I'm like learning how to shoot hoops. Right. And I suck. I'm no good. Like it's like 15, 20, 30 shots, all misses. And I'm like really trying for this three point shot. Like I'm like, I can do it. I got it. And like my brothers have already gone inside like the sun is going down. They're over it. And I finally make the three point shot and I'm so excited and proud of myself. So I go into the kitchen and I get like a can of whipped cream and I'm like, I deserve a reward. So like I put a little bit on my finger and I eat it and I'm like, okay, like one more, one more, one more. <laughs> and then I go as far as to putting the can back in the fridge closing the fridge, walking out of the kitchen upstairs to going all the way downstairs, coming back, opening up to the fridge. And like, I finished, it was a brand new can of whipped cream. <laughs> like I finished it. And like, I was so sick and I wanted to do it again. Yeah. And like that, if there's like not, like that encompasses like this entire disease and like more of like a funny way, right? Um, when it started to get more serious was uh, when those traumatic events unfolded. Um, you know, like I didn't realize at the time that like things were much darker than they were. I mean, like with my mother, I was her her caretaker, man. Like I was the youngest, but in a sense, I was the oldest. Um, you know, I, I I spent time feeding her because she she was 86 pounds. Um, you know, I, I visited her at Renfrew. I visited her in the hospital. I checked in at all hours of the night to make sure she was still breathing. And, and like, how old are you around this time? eight seven we'll get back to this conversation in a second but right now a word from our sponsors from the host of the popular podcast the only one in the room stash by laura cathcart robbins is a propulsive and vivid memoir about the journey to sobriety and self-love amidst addiction privilege racism and self-sabotage Best-selling author Holly Whitaker calls it an irresistibly delicious story. And MacArthur Foundation fellow and best-selling author Kiese Lehman says Stash is emotionally riveting. Buy Stash by Laura Cathcart Robbins now, wherever books are sold. And like my dad had this great job that brought, you know, he was the financial provider. So like he traveled the world ultimately for a week, a week and a half at a time. And um, it what was did your dad do? Like Can a, you say that? 
he he worked uh for this company called uh what was it at the time um he was an an executive at some company a fortune 500 company and he traveled um and like that was his way of like keeping the family afloat um you know it was it was something that we didn't necessarily talk about outside of that household because you know we lived in like upper middle class Glen Mills and we had a beautiful house and the two pugs and you know it was like yeah. we had this life and it and you know I came home from school and it was like okay time to take off the the student hat and put on the mother hat I mean that's that's really what it looked like what was for, it like for a long time so what kind of drugs or, or was your mom doing or was it just drinking and and Yep, just drinking okay. um, and uh, really suffered with, with an eating disorder to a point where it was like deteriorating her brain um, because it was so malnourished because, uh, you know, a human being needs to eat and drink water like, at, like you know, to keep the brain at alive. At the baseline level, yeah. Right, right. And um, this, this eating disorder ravaged her for, for a number of years, I would say more than 10 years easily. And I, I don't know your story and forgive me for being callous, but what happened to mom? Yeah. So, um, my mother attempted and completed suicide. Um, so I was 11 years old. It was December 6th of 2009. So my birthday is on the 25th. So it was right before my 12th birthday. And, um, at the time it felt like a shock, but it really wasn't. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, my mother often talked about suicide um wanting to end it and like you know granted again at this time like the stigma associated around mental health mental illness like it was it was much deeper so you know we'd hear that stuff and be like oh no 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 like that that's not gonna happen like you're okay like i mean we really dismissed it when you know any threat is a serious threat and uh you know because this was such a long journey and a long time coming um when it finally happened my my world changed in the blink of an eye. I mean, I can't even, I can't even imagine, uh, you know, how that plays out afterwards, you know, or even in the moment, but what, what happens to you as far as addiction and taking in substances, did, did it trigger uh, the activity right away? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, like the first drug for me, right? Like the first, the first drug for me was alcohol. Um, you know, I went from like partying with friends and like, you know, really like this escapism to like, I'm going to go hang out with the cool kids. Right. Cause like, I wasn't the cool kid. I'll admit it. Like, it, just, <laughs> it wasn't me. Like I was like kind of a dork growing up. So like, you know, when I got invited to like, cause I, I joined the lacrosse team cause the cool girls played on the lacrosse team. Right. Like I wanted this in to like feel a sense of belongings. So, like when I finally got invited to the party and I'm like 14 years old it was like, oh, wow, like, this is cool. And um, when alcohol was introduced to that party, it wasn't even like the scary thing is, right, is that it wasn't even a thought. I didn't think about my mom. I didn't think about like the pain that had caused her. I didn't think about the genetic component. Like I thought like, this is going to be so good. Um, This is and it was sort of like this you know, and like, I'll, I'll reference Doug, right? Cause like, I just listened to his podcast. And Doug he, Overton, he, something yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Something that he said was, uh, I felt like I deserved it. And I felt like that I deserved a break that it was like, I deserve to get outside of myself because my mother killed herself. I deserve to get outside of myself. Um, because I had gone through, uh, you know, like childhood sexual abuse which is like another component of my story. And, um, you know, for me, when I, when I used it for the first time, I'll never forget feeling this is how I want to feel for the rest of my life. Mm, you're telling my story. I mean, that's it. Yeah. 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 yeah same exact age, you know, uh, around 13, 14. And it was like, you know, this story I've told, I tell all the time, but you know, forgive me if you're listening, you've heard it before, but in eighth grade, I was terrified to go to dances. And in ninth grade, I started to drink and I could not wait to get there. And, right, yeah, right. Because I mean, you it, can be like this extroverted, fun, mm -hmm. like there's no fear, there's no barriers. But like, like, let's like make some clarity. Like that's how it felt at the time. Yeah. Um, Like really what it was, was that like, it was this mask of like, I'm going to, I was, you know, I love the, the phrase, like I was a really good chameleon. 
Like I was really good at being who you wanted me to be. So you would like me because I didn't like myself. How does it, how did it pick up steam? You know, because right now we're similar. Uh, look at our stories. 14, you're drinking. It's starting to take flight, let's say. And how do you get involved? Now there's a whole nother element to, mm -hmm. you know, I started to take prescription drugs probably when I was 18, you know, but I wasn't, right. it wasn't, I, I would take whatever you would give me, but I was able to kind of like muddle through some of the stuff that you end up taking, as we know, is just crippling. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and, and you're on the fast track to, to nowhere or to death. What happens after alcohol uh, where you can continue to just spiral? Right. I mean, like my progression of my disease was much faster. Um, I mean, over the course of five years, like, I mean, what, 14, 15, 16, 17, like three years, four years, like it wasn't even that long um, in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, went from like, I love this, I love this, I love drinking to, oh, like, you know, marijuana is introduced to me, um, you know, same feeling. I was like out on a creek with like a good friend of mine and um, we, we smoked weed and I smoked weed for the first time. And I was like, I want to feel this way for the rest of my life. Yes. And like, the thing is, is that it was never enough. And I didn't see that at the time. Like, it was just like, I didn't want to feel the way that I felt. I didn't want to go through grief. I didn't want to go through, um, you know, having to look at myself in the mirror. And like, as you know, like as our addiction progresses, like the harm that we cause others also enhances, yeah. um, you know, stealing from my dad, like taking money out of his wallet, um, you know, like threatening my brothers for money, like, because like, I didn't have a job. I was 15. Um, so, you know, it went very quickly from like drinking on at parties and smoking weed on the weekends to like, <laughs> like watching some stupid TV show on a Tuesday night and like taking a shot every time they said the word the, you, yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like yeah. what, what, what is my life? But you really like, turn a corner as an alcoholic or an addict when you're a kid and you realize there's alcohol at the house that I can access and drink and I can, I can do this now on a Tuesday, like you said, right. or a Wednesday. To me, that's when, the wheels really started to come off, uh, even though maybe on the outside, I, I sort of kept it together. But mentally, I was like, whoa, you're telling me I can do this all the time. Right. And it was like sort of like Pandora's box opening. Like, OK, like nobody's. And, and my thought process was like, who's going to fault me? Who's going to tell me? that I shouldn't because of all the if trauma I tell that you them, if I tell them all the things that I went through, they'll be like, damn, okay, Chris, like I got no room to talk. Yeah. Um, you know, like just like a fast forward. Did you always still you have know, like this, this, this real charismatic personality and <laughs> like that great smile? Were you able to like, really, I mean, so on the outside, were you, was the con like working out for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I could talk my, my way out of anything, anything. Like, I mean, you talk about, like, those deep, dark moments, right? And, like, I'll never forget, um, I, uh, I was threatening my dad for money. And I, I said, like, Dad, I'm going to kill myself if you don't give me, like, $300. Like, I mean, like, it was, it was sick, right? But, like, this is, like, diseased active addiction, Kristen. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget, like, my father calling the police. And, and like, I'm throwing stuff around the house and I'm like throwing a tantrum basically because I am a 16 year old in a five year old body or, you know, yeah. flip it around. And, um, and the cops came and I'm in like, <laughs> like PJs that I've been wearing for like five days, seven days, I'm barefoot, I showered. And like, all of this is taking place in like the four walls of like this Glen Mills home. Home. Like nobody would have possibly thought that I would literally walk in my mother's footsteps. So as I run up the long driveway and I run down the cul-de-sac, this cop is chasing after <laughs> me and he reaches for his gun. And I stop in my tracks and I throw my hands up and I look at him and he says, come here. And um, I walk towards him and he says, I'm going to give you two options. You're either going to come with me and we're going to take you to Crozier and uh was it Crozier it was uh some crisis center in Chester he was like I'm either going to take you here 
and it's going to be a legally enforced, uh, you know, like you're going to have to be there and it's going to be on your record or your dad can take you and it can be voluntary. Those are your choices. And I went with my dad, obviously, <laughs> because I could sweet talk my dad and not sweet talk the cop. Like the cop's going to see right through me. And I'm trying to sweet talk my dad. And I'm like, dad, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. And he's like, no, it's not. Like, this is the last straw, Chris. Like, I can't do this. And like, granted, there are like 18 other last straws because mm -hmm. like, that's, I didn't want to stop digging. And, um, and we get there and there's like a door and then a holding room and then a door. And then there are cops and like medical professionals on the other side. And you go in this little space because they have to like check you for guns or weapons or drugs or, you know, what have you. And at this point, I am, uh, I'm only wearing a sweatshirt. Like I'm not wearing anything, anything underneath the sweatshirt. And, um, and the cop tells me, not the cop that brought me in, but somebody that's in there, he says, you need to take your sweatshirt off. And I'm like, look, I'm not wearing a shirt underneath this. I'm not going to do that. And um, he's like, I'm sorry. Like, I was like, can't you just metal detector me? Like, I, I really don't want to do this. He said, no, you either have to or like you're going to be arrested. And I had to take my sweatshirt off in front of all of these grown men. And I remember, I'll never forget my dad trying to cover me with his jacket. Mm. And like, he had like a lot of, like, he was really just like powerless over this. Um, and they look at him and they tell him, get your hands off her. And I stood there without a shirt on or a top or anything and these cops are staring at me um and sort of like laughing a little bit and they say shake off your sweatshirt and i shake it and they say okay you can put it back on and that was probably one of the harder things that i've had to go through in my active addiction because i knew that i needed help that like this was a this was horrible. That's one of those and, moments of clarity where you're like, wow, mm -hmm. you know, as, 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 as fucked up as you are or whatever, you said that voice is like, whoa, like this yeah. is bad. And <laughs> like, I, I talked to the shrink um, and, uh, and I talked to him for about an hour and a half and I talked to him about NPR and all the fabulous intelligent books I've read and how I'm just troubled and, you know, I'm not a threat to myself or another person. Like I just, you know, I had a really hard life and I just, I need therapy and, and I'm giving him all the information that he wants. Right. And he lets me go. My dad is very upset. And what do I do? I go home and I get high. Um, because I don't want to remember what it felt like to have those cops looking at me as an underage girl. Um, it took what a year longer for me to get clean. And, and of course, like it went on to, other things um what were you, know, what were you doing what, what kind of stuff were you doing yeah that, that yeah so like path? me and my friend were taking her mom's prescription medication um you know i would not say and i i would not say that i had an addiction to opiates just because it was like every once in a while um i was more of like a dumpster like whatever yeah. you can give me um you know there was another time where i was partying in north philadelphia and the guy said here here's some molly and uh he overcharged me because it was meth and, um, and I, and again, like another moment of clarity, like I knew that, uh, that I was an addict because I snorted one line and he started laughing and was like, this is meth. It's not Molly. And I snorted the other half. Yeah. I went to treatment a week later. And so when you get to treatment, like what's, what is, cause we, you and I talked about it. We both went to Karen, um, and you know, which is in Pennsylvania and, and you go there and you kind of just knowing your story now and talking to you about this a little bit, you sort of try to follow in your mom's footsteps. I don't want to say try, but you, you go to Karen and you attempt to, to take your life. So you're in rehab and yeah, what, what, what happens? Yeah. So, I mean, Karen was my second treatment center. The first one that I went to is I was 15. I went to, uh, I think it was called pyramid and I don't, I don't think it exists anymore, but it's, it was, it was an adolescent treatment center. I was okay. there for 23 days. But when I drove up to like magic mountain, yeah. it was like, this Which is, is what like, they call the, yeah. yeah, they call Karen know, magic yeah. mountain. Yeah. Um, it was sort of like this hail Mary throw. It was like, all right, like this is the best of the best treatment that you can get without flying you to like, you know, California. And even still like Karen has a great reputation. So, and you're just we taking the by, the time, by, by the way, by the time you get there, you're just taking yeah. everything you can pretty much. 
Right. I mean, I when I, when I finally got there, um, it was about an hour and some change drive. And when I got there, you know, I did not want to get clean. Like, just to be super clear, I did not want to get clean. I wanted to stop using drugs for a little while. Like, I thought I needed like a detox and that I'd be able to like drink or smoke weed on the weekend. Like, that's what I thought. When I finally got admitted into Karen, I started sitting in groups. I was around like 10 other girls that were around the same age as me because I was in the teen program because I was a teenager. And, um, you know, like I remember like laying in the bed being like, this isn't that bad. Like the beds were really nice. (laughs) The food was pretty good. They had a frozen yogurt machine. (laughs) Like it was like, okay, like this is like pretty cool. Like I get a customized omelet, right? And (laughs) like... These are like, and and I do want to say that like it was a privilege to be able to go to Karen. Not yeah. everybody gets those resources, mm-hmm. um, and I think that like scholar more scholarships should exist. Um, and I know that they're working on that, but you know the reason why I I attempted and I attempted suicide was uh, was because I had suppressed memories of childhood sexual abuse come up, and um, you know that was that was really really hard. Um, you know, sexual abuse was like a very common theme um, inside addiction, outside of addiction. So, uh, you know, being a young woman who's, you know, conventionally attractive, like it's just, even if I wasn't, like it doesn't matter. Like I was to be used by other people. Um, So when these memories came up, it was so scary because I didn't think that I would be able to live with that. Um, and you couldn't shake went, it. Right, right. I mean, I was so scared. Um, is there a fear I, like I, that this will happen again? Or is it just like I've, um, I've been completely violated? I mean, I think that uh, it was such a shock because, I mean, any form of sexual assault is a shock whether you believe it right after it happens or you believe it 20 years later. Um, you know, it's a shock to the system because something has been taken away from you non-consensually. Um, feelings are involved that you thought that you would never feel. So, you know, that's the beauty of like therapy and 12 step and, you know, like being honest and open about it. Like the only reason why I'm honest and open about it with you, I mean, like right before this podcast, I was thinking to myself, like, am I going to talk about that? And I sat there and I was like, why not? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what's, what's the harm? Like, yeah, it's, it's like, cause I, I know I'm not the only one. Oh no. Um, all you can do is help people. I mean, hopefully there's people right. listening to this right now and being like, oh my gosh, she can talk about it. I can too. Because the thing about when you're in, in, in addiction with me, uh, all those feelings I had of anxiety or shame, or whatever I drank and used on them. So for people that don't mm-hmm. know, at least for me, and I can relate to you, when you get to rehab, all this stuff starts to come up. So you're sober right. and you're starting to have these emotions about, oh my gosh, like this is this is me. Right, well, I used because I didn't like the way that I felt. Yeah. I didn't like myself. So when I was in treatment, it was like, you know, I <laughs> I sort of love that, you know, I was like raw dogging reality. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was like, okay, like, were you now? Were you able to find the gear to talk about this stuff? Yeah, I mean, look, like it took some time. Mm-hmm. Um, it took some time. Um, I attempted suicide uh, by breaking a coffee pot and slitting my wrist down and across. Mm. I ran out into the street, into the parking lot. I was bleeding out. I was like near death. And a counselor. Um, and she's like, I see her every year because, like, I come up to Karen and, like, I talk to the to the, to the people. And um, she wrapped her jacket around my arm and stopped the bleeding. And an ambulance came and took me. Um, and I, I, I love her. I do. Like, she saved my life. And if we're talking about, like, I mean, there's so many bottoms. But, like, if we're really talking about that one, it was, like, I knew that, like, I'm either going to, like, move forward or I'm going to die. Like, I mean, and I really didn't want to die. I just didn't want to feel the way that I was feeling. You know what I mean? Yeah. When do you start? So when do you start? I totally know what you mean. When do you start yeah. to get that feeling? Cause now again, you're sitting in front of me and you're on fire. How, how do you, how, at what point 
do you turn the corner and you say, fuck it, I'm all in. I'm going to start talking about this stuff. Because the moment I started to talk about those secrets and those deep fears and that, that shame, I did start to feel better. Was there? Right. Yeah. I mean, the moment that I really started honestly and openly talking about it and like really telling the truth, like not, oh, this might have happened. Excuse me. Or like, oh, it's not like, funny, but you hear that people you know, are halfway at a lot. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And like I it was like half measures availed us. Right. Like mm -hmm. that's like a saying. And I really started talking about it when I would hear other people talk about it in our groups. Like I was transferred to another treatment center up in Illinois. So like I did a total of like five and a half months of treatment. Mm -hmm. um, when I went up to this treatment in Illinois, it was uh, Timberline Knowles and it was uh, for people that had experienced trauma or self-harming, which was like my bag too. And um, an eating disorder, which was also my bag. So I had sort of like this plethora of stuff and when we would sit in groups and there would be the girl that would talk about like her uncle, you know, molesting her or, you know, the girl that said like, you know, my dad abused me and beat me. It was like, I might not necessarily relate to those exact experiences, but I know what it feels like to have your body respond in a way and your mind respond differently. And that shame and that guilt, because the thing about shame is, is that it keeps us from talking. So if they were able to talk so bravely about this, maybe I would too. And I'll never forget putting my hand up and saying those words that I am a survivor of, you know, sexual assault and, and really like sharing my story and having people nod and, and like, believe me. I think that was my biggest fear that people wouldn't believe me. So when they finally did, it was like, oh my God, like, yeah. this is amazing. It was, it was again like one very 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 small step and but but you're in you're in treatment in illinois and and do you not there's no there's no other slip after that no more drugs no more alcohol no my queen date's february 10th 2015 and so when um, do you when do you get so you get out and and what happens next you went to, you went to bridgeway which you and i were talking yesterday is a yeah. high school it's a sober high school and i see you get that huge smile mm -hmm. when, when, when we even say say the word or the name no did you go into bridgeway right away or was there time in between because i was like so you I, I being institutionalized was like the best thing that ever happened to me oh my god yeah. i mean incredible like and at the time i'm like oh like i'm gonna have to repeat my junior year but it's like i gave up six months of my life for the rest of my life yes like uh -huh. yeah. it's a no-brainer yeah no-brainer so I got back in the summer. It was time. I mean, my high school was very polite in the fact that they were like, you should probably go somewhere else. This is Pencrest. Um, yeah. Okay. They were like, we, you're not thriving here. <laughs> we're not going to expel you, but like, uh -huh. you got to figure it out. So like Karen suggested the Bridgeway school and, uh, and it was the best thing for me, man, because like I would have never been able to get clean sitting next to my drug dealer first period in math class. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's not possible. Um, so when I got into Bridgeway, which is, um, it's the first recovery high school in Pennsylvania. Um, Rebecca Bonner was the head of school. Angela Smith is the head of school now. And there was like six of us and we had a classroom and there was a principal's office and a place where we sat and talked and upstairs, like we like shared, it was like a synagogue. So like it was like split in two. And uh, it was an adjustment <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was it like going there? I mean, is there therapy involved in the school? Like, is there a class where you talk about addiction or, or feelings, or is that completely separate? No, I mean, we had like, I'm pretty sure it was weekly groups where we would all get together. And like, a lot of us thought it was super corny. Like, we'd get together and like play a feelings game or something like, and like, you know, but like I had to learn how to talk about my feelings. Like I didn't know what it meant to be angry. I just thought like I was a bad person. Like, you know, I had to learn how to identify these feelings. So like when I came in and we would like do these groups, like we would all be like sitting like this and like looking away. And after 10 minutes, 20 minutes, like somebody would open up and they'd be like, yeah, man, like I just, I really wanted to use yesterday. And like, I hate myself. Like I have like four months clean. Like why would I want to use? And the counselor would be like, well, you want to use because basketball players think about playing basketball and drug addicts or alcoholics think about using drugs or drinking. Like, 
not a fault in the system. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's, it's you. So it was really in those weekly groups um, and the daily check-ins when we would come into school, we wouldn't go to like homeroom. We would read a just for today and, and talk about how our night went. Like it was really cool to like come in and be like, Hey, like I got a year clean, you know? Cause like that was me. Um, it would be cool. Like it was, it was so Which cool. Which at that age like, is, a, I'm going to tell you, it's amazing. It really, really <laughs> is. You. I mean, yeah. It, I had a buddy who got sober at 17 uh, and I talk about him a lot on this podcast, but he kind of, he kind of blazed the trail for, for my, myself at least to know where to go. Um, but like at that, yeah. age, at that age, like I, I just, I just can't imagine it cause it's not my story. Right. But it still seems amazing cause you're around people that are, that are using and drinking because that's what they do at that age. I mean, that's, that, well, that's it's just hard it. to decipher. Yes. It's hard to figure out like, what is what, like mm-hmm. what's like the chicken or the, like, you know, yeah. like what, what comes first and how did you do socially? You know, like as far as you're going to the Bridgeway school and, and, and how careful are you? about integration back into society uh well well, so like i i deleted all my social media um you know i changed my phone number i got a new phone like you know this is real deal shit this is honestly it seems extreme like even me now i'm like oh god you deleted social media right i'm like Like, i don't want to change my phone number number, but we're talking we're talking life or death you know i didn't have a phone for for the longest time when I first got sober mm-hmm. because it was advised I that I it. don't, you know, it was advised that I don't. Um, yeah. and, and all those things, like I said, yes to going to a recovery house and all that stuff that by the way, sometimes today I like to think I'm cured and I don't have to say yes to any of that stuff anymore. You know, yeah. like the little things that we do when, uh, when we're sober, uh, to just right. stay true to the program. But, uh, I, I was ready then, you know, I was, I was a clean slate and that's, that sounds like that's exactly what you did. How did you find the, where did you find the ability to do that uh, was it was it desperation or was it you were following suggestions i mean i i really think like there was something inside of me that was like everything that you've done hasn't worked the drugs didn't work the alcohol didn't work the, the self-harm didn't work like the not talking about it didn't work like all of my best decisions wound me up in a chair on a tuesday night in a meeting you know what i mean like that's where my life brought me so like what did I have to lose? I told myself for years I was going to die before 18. Like that was like my day. That was my year. Um, so like, what did I have to lose? Like if it worked cool, if it didn't work cool, but I think like what my biggest fear was if I put my whole ass into it and it didn't work, then I would truly be a failure. Right. Um, so did that, did that keep you from, from, from diving all in? for a while like that fear of failure yeah yeah yeah. it was like i don't want to you know what if it doesn't work for me and um you know it's a perfect program for imperfect people like i I went to meetings i still go to meetings like three meetings a week i'm going to a meeting tonight with my sponsor like it's just it's a part of my life now it is i mean my life is built around this but like man like when i was in high school it was like it was hard man like anybody that's new to sobriety like it's hard because you have been doing something the same way for so many years and like you have to change your entire life based off of the suggestion of basically strangers yeah yeah <laughs> it's like you have to put blind faith in like this this person yeah, and you people. do have to be at a point where you're kind of beaten into that state right where you're ready to be like yeah. okay what do you what do you I have? I was very desperate. Yeah. yeah. I was very Me desperate. Me too. A gift of desperation, you know. And and not everybody gets to the point, Kristen, right, where we gotta change our phone numbers or whatever, but but I did, and so did you. Yeah. You know, and that's that's just that's our story. When do you become when does it become clear to you that you're gonna be an advocate? Or, or that you're because you're going to meetings now and it's starting to work and I want to get into uh what what you do, speaking to schools. Yeah. because uh, it's such an an apt time for somebody like you to come along. Look, we need people like you. And and when do you get that fire in your belly at a, such a young age that I, I want to carry this message? Yeah. So, you know, just to tell a very quick story. Um, yeah, you're a storyteller. When I, when I, I yeah, yeah. It's, it's my job. <laughs> <laughs> when I went to the Bridgeway School, 
I, Rebecca asked me, Rebecca Bonner was the head of school and she said, how would you like to not go to school today? And I was like, I would love that. And she was like, why don't you go into Philadelphia? I cannot recall where, but she was like, why don't you go into Philadelphia? And I want you to speak on this panel. And like, at this point I have no experience. I don't know what I'm doing. So how long were you so before that time? I had to have been 18 at this point. Um, maybe a year, maybe a little bit less. Um, so I speak on this, I go to this panel, I sit there and I'm like talking about medical marijuana, which like (laughs) I had no business talking about. Like I, I was not like, she told me she just wanted me to talk about the Bridgeway school. Like just go there because you are the person in the school that has the most clean time. So you're the chosen one. So I go and I, I speak on this panel about the Bridgeway school and this guy comes up to me and he's speaking on the panel with me. And little did I know, like, I'm speaking with like two, like, you know, Mayor Michael Nutter and his wife, like at the time. And oh. I have no idea what I'm doing. He's the so, mayor of Philly. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like, I'm like, all right, nice to meet you. Like, whatever. <laughs> and <laughs> which later on, I'm like, ah, like it was me when I, I spoke to like Michael Bloomberg like a year later. Right. I didn't know who he was. Wow. I like had no idea. <laughs> And they're like, you spoke to former Mayor Michael Bloomberg, who's giving $50 million to the United States for the opioid epidemic. Thanks for speaking. And I was like, <laughs> that's who that was? <laughs> like, and it was him and Tom Wolf. Like, wow. But that's like. So that's the mayor of New York City and the governor of Pennsylvania <laughs> you're talking to, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. There's a picture in the Inquirer somewhere. I'll yeah. have to forward it to you. Yeah. Um, but it was like, basically the guy that I spoke on the panel with, he worked for Minding Your Mind. And Minding Your Mind is the organization I work for now. And, uh, and he said, how would you like to speak for Minding Your Mind when you graduate high school? And I was like, okay, bet. (laughs) (laughs) And I graduated high school, and I applied to Penn State, and I got into Penn State. And um, I went to the branch campus, Brandywine. And I when I wasn't in class, I was speaking. And I went through six months of training. And what kind of training? It was like how to be an effective public speaker. I mean, there's some natural it worked. for me. Yeah. Um, like I am blessed to be articulate sometimes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not all the time. Yeah. But uh, you know, we, we went through like how to say things, right? So like usually when we talk about suicide, because their mission is to reduce the stigma associated around mental health. But for me, I talk about mental health and addiction. When we talk about suicide, people usually say they commit suicide. Like Suzanne Heratunian committed suicide. Commit has such a negative connotation, like you commit a crime or like you're in trouble or you're bad. So we say attempt and complete. So there's not that negative connotation. It seems like such a small thing, Mm -hmm. but in the grand scheme of things, like the way that we talk is it's a lot more than just a couple of words. Yeah, when you said that uh, we were talking earlier, it, it grabbed me. You yeah. Know, that, that that choice of wording and words are important and I need to work on this in my life all over the place, but being intentional is so important. And It is, and that was what the training was. It was like, you know, how can you tell your entire story in the span of 30 minutes? And how can you do it in a non-triggering, educational and impactful way? And that's like our bread and butter. Like I go in there and um, into schools and companies and community centers and colleges, like camps. Like I've gone all over the place, um, all over the country. What's the mindset? Because people listening to this uh, may be of the age where they have have kids who are like six, seven years younger than you. And, and, And those are... Those kids are on the front lines now because you hear mm-hmm. about, you know, the, the, the fentanyl crisis is just out of control where you or or I, um, you know, would just go to snort a line of what we thought was Adderall or something like that. It could be fentanyl lace and you're dead. I mean, and that's yep. uh, up the stakes a little bit, maybe cocaine, but you get what I'm saying. What happens mm-hmm. when you go into these schools and you're and you're talking to these kids? How can you get through to them? How do you try to? It's so hard to like not get emotional Um, just because like when I talk to these kids and like this is the reason why I haven't stopped what I'm doing. I've been with Minding Your Mind for going on six years. Like 
those kids that I talk to, like when I tell my story, it's in a very authentic way. Um, you know, there, it, there, of course there are like stats and facts and stuff, but it's very minimal. It's, it's, you know, telling my life and, and being vulnerable and being honest and like t- showing people like what my darkest days were and then wrapping up the story with like that, like we, we get better. It gets better. You know, I, when I show them pictures of my dog or I, I show them pictures of me hiking or that I live in an apartment in Maniunk that I pay for that, like I have this cool job, but like, most importantly, like, I don't want to die today. And like, it's because of therapy. It's because of positive coping skills. It's because I asked for help or help was given to me. And, um, you know, like teaching kids the warning signs through my own personal experience, like it makes it real. Like we had dare come in when I was a kid and like, I was like, Psh, that's not going to be me. <laughs> yeah. And like, that was me. And like, you know, when, when there's like five or six kids that are waiting in line to talk to you and to say, you know, my parents just got divorced. They just announced they're getting divorced yesterday. And I really needed to hear this. You know, that is the line between that kid going to grab a bottle for the first time and hearing something else and maybe practicing yoga or writing about their feelings instead. Like that is the line and it's such a fine line. Um, you know, the kid that says like, you know, my parents, they don't, they don't think I mental illness is real. Like parents model how they, they model the behavior for the kids. So if your parent, is talking about their feelings and talking about, Hey, I had a really bad day today, but I'm going to, I'm going to sit in my room and journal for a little bit. What is the kid going to do? The kid is going to model that behavior. Um, hopefully. So, I mean, it's like the very first question that you asked was like, you know, how did you, how, what is it? What, what is it like being an advocate? It is by far the best thing that I have ever done in my life. And you keep besides doing, getting clean, yeah. <laughs> but you keep doing it. A couple more things before I let you go. You go, you go into parts of the city of Philadelphia. We talked about Kensington, which is just mm-hmm. for people who live, listen in other parts of the country. It's, I, I don't know. How would you describe? How would you describe Kensington? I mean, what do they call it? The heroin capital of the world. Um, I mean, it's like it looks like as out of a zombie movie. Um, You know, when I, one of my first times going to Kensington, like I remember I was on the phone with my girl, Ashley, like my very best friend. And I was like turning off into the, uh, what is it? Uh, Like there's an exit that like brings you right to Uh K&A. And, you know, I never used in Kensington. Like that wasn't my story, but like I know a lot of people that have, and like it's like eight in the morning, right? Like I'm going to like talk to these fourth graders. No, they were third graders. I was going to talk to these third graders and there are people walking openly in the street, just nodding, nodding out. out and out of their minds. Um, I didn't want to get out of my car, you know, like not because I was afraid of them, but because like, you know, there's a big part of me that still exists where I just want to like get up and leave and run. But like, <laughs> yeah. I, I went back into that. I went, I went into that school because like that very well might be some kid's parent. You know what I mean? Like who knows? And like, I remember speaking to the school and like, it was, or it was a classroom of like third graders. And I did, they were like, do your presentation as if you're talking to 18 year olds. And I was like, okay, like whatever you say. And I did it. And the kids were dead silent. And I was like, oh, no, like these poor kids, like I said too much. And I'm packing up my stuff and getting ready to go. And the teacher says, like, hey, Chris, like, can you come here a second? And I'm like, oh, like, oh, man, this isn't good. And she's like, why don't you come into this other classroom with me? And all the kids are sitting there and she looks over at them and she's like, "Okay, go ahead. And they all shoot their hands up. And it's like question after question after question. My mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, like struggling with opioid addiction, like struggling in and out of treatment, in and out of jail. Like, you know, you inspired me. Your story made me feel like I'm not alone. Like, I mean, like these kids crying, giving me hugs. And I'm like, I can't believe it. So like going into Kensington, like I'm not going into Kensington to use. I'm going into Kensington to like just try to do my part. And you know what I mean? Yeah, and you're using 
the stuff like in sobriety and recovery and those tools and those coping skills because you cope with fear, right? You walk yeah. through it. You, you, you go there where the message is, is so badly, so badly needed. Well, it's the reason why I was on the phone with my friend. She is like nine years clean. If she listens to this, I might be wrong. Uh-huh. Nine, ten, eight. <laughs> going on somewhere in that range yeah. and um and i called her because like i knew i was like potentially going into like a shady neighborhood and you know i hashed it out with her like why i was fearful why i was doubting myself and she said like you know these you know you might not have lived these people's lives but you know what that desperation feels like and that's and what you do like, that's it yeah but you talk to other people in the program that, that can that can help you through that all right so the last thing when I when I saw you, uh, it was you're at Citizens Bank Park, but b- before the Phillies game. I mean, you're speaking now at a major league. You know, you you really are flirting with and and you've gone to great heights. You know, you and you're helping people while you're doing it. But but I got to imagine as as a young girl who grew up in Philly, and there you are sitting there in front of the media at Citizens Bank Park, and you're owning shit. Right? <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, that was like, and, and I'll put that Instagram clip on here, but th- that is like, what, is there a moment there where you're like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm doing good work. I mean, you got to stay humble, but at the same time, there's got to be moments of great gratitude. That moment was like, ah, it was like, oh my God, like, I cannot believe this because like minding your mind, like set this up, right? So like minding your mind has a partnership with the Philadelphia Phillies called strike out the stigma so like they have minding your mind speakers that speak alongside with other speakers on this panel i was just like the chosen one of the month right so like we have like amazing speakers that all talk about different things but like when i sat on that panel and like i just like couldn't believe it like i mean like from the girl that was sitting in that hospital bed with like 15 20 stitches in her arm that just prayed for death is now sitting in Citizens Bank Park, sharing her story to a bunch of people that want to hear it. It it was just like, I mean, like I try to stay humble, but like I told them, I was like, you need to take a picture of me with my hands up like this. <laughs> and just like, that's what needs to happen because like, you know, recovery is fun. Like, yes. we, we should be able to have fun in here. Like mm-hmm. I went to the game with my partner, Tim afterwards, and it was great. Like, yeah. you know, um, and I love partnerships like that, man. Like, you know, I do want to say, like, before we sort of close it out here, like, yo, if you want me to speak, like, you hit me up. <laughs> you, <laughs> you you hit up, minding your mind. And uh, I'm here for it because, you know, it's, this is what it's all about. What do you tell somebody, a young girl or a guy that comes in and asks you, I, I can't stop. You know, how, how, how do I stop? How do I get a day? What do you tell them? What I really, I, I, I usually ask them, I like challenge them a little bit and I'll say, what have you done to stop? What have you tried? And most of the time, the answer that I get from the kids is like, oh, well, I tried going and I saw this one therapist and I saw him for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. I, I tried to stop on my own. And I would say, have you let anybody know that there's a problem or that you're struggling? And they'll say no, because I... I got it under control. And I'll say, well, if you have it under control, then why are you standing here talking to me? Why didn't you just go back to class? And it's in those moments where like, I give them a moment to reflect. And then I ask them, can I walk you to the counseling office? Can we sit and talk with them? And although my job is done, right? Like I can get up and go and drive home and like go to Wawa or whatever, like, I sit in the counseling office with them and like we talk about like what's going on because like the first step like we talked about why in the beginning is that honesty. Like nobody can help me unless I know unless they know where I'm at. And um, usually that first step is like one of many like I've said a thousand times but you know I tell them like the more honest that you are the better. And um, a lot of it is just like maybe somebody else knows something that you don't. You're unbelievable Kristen. You're a superstar. I really cannot thank you enough. I can't thank you enough. This is like such a privilege and an honor. And, you know, I I hope to meet you in person one day. (laughs) For sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And it's funny. I talk with Eric um, Blindenbacher at at, uh, 
synergy and and uh yeah i might go back and over christmas talk to the kids so i'll let you know love um, it yeah love you're you're the best. best i mean literally uh anything else people need to know about you i'll put your website and stuff in the show notes uh you know uh, no i mean feel free to reach out when's the book no. coming out i mean geez let's go no. <laughs> i'm writing a book yeah. currently are secretly. you yeah i can yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm telling you i'm telling you it's uh it's great stuff and it and it radiates off you and and this war on drugs for lack of a better term um you know again substance abuse disorder addiction whatever you want to call it we need people like you um and i need people like you to just keep me sober because now i feel i went to a meeting before this and i feel i feel much better yeah. about myself than i did at 10 o'clock a.m central time i feel pretty damn good now and it's then it's through a meeting and talking to people like you and it's kind of what it's all about that's right yeah. I, I do i do the same things today that i did like seven and some change years ago. Nothing's changed except life circumstances. So, and they've gotten a heck of a lot better. So, Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast.